Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome back to the show. Venetia here. It's currently late afternoon on Monday and it's raining outside. The sky is very grey, but the trees look lovely and lush and green from my window. And I feel very cozy. It's always nice to be inside when it's raining outside. I am really excited to be bringing you today's episode. If you are new to the show, please be sure to subscribe. I know every single podcaster says this, but if you would like to leave a review, it is just so, so helpful. So if you do gain something from these episodes, then please do take a second to leave a review. It would mean the world to me. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can always DM me on Instagram at ATST podcast. I read all of your messages and I also love hearing your feedback. So thank you so much to those of you who have got in touch so far and also left a review. Super grateful to have you here each week. You are about to hear a conversation with the wonderful Kathy Ray, which I absolutely loved recording. I also loved meeting her, albeit virtually. It's quite a long one because there's a lot in there and I think there's loads to be gained from it. Kathy is a writer, editor and disability consultant. She covers disability rights and representation with a particular interest in the beauty and film industries. She's also a single mother of two and speaks about her life and her experiences on Instagram at that single mum. I would really recommend following her there. As with all of my guests who share a lot of their work on social media, make sure you familiarize yourself with her space before getting in touch. We talk about a lot of things in this episode. Honestly, there is so much in there. Now, there is a moment in the interview where Kathy corrects how I say able-bodied people instead of non-disabled people. And I've left it in there um, because I think it's really important for me to show you that I am very much still learning when it comes to disability. Right, let us crack on to this exceptional, exceptional human. I'm so grateful to have her here. Here's Kathy Ray on All the Small Things. So, Kathy, thank you so much for joining me on All the Small Things. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Let us start as we always do. I would love to hear if you have some kind of morning routine. Okay, so my morning routine, I've got to be honest, is chaos. <laughs> my- <laughs> I am not a morning person at all and I want to be one of those people that gets up two hours before my kids and like journals and meditates and you know thinks about the day but I'm just not I just enjoy my sleep way too much so what usually happens is my eldest will walk into the room um Usually she's overslept as well if it's a school day. If it's not a school day, she'll walk in at 6 a.m. And um, she'll walk into the room, uh, say hello to me, and then I'll kind of drag myself out of bed. And the first thing I do before even making the kids breakfast is I make myself a cup of tea because I can't even communicate with them before having a cup of tea. (laughs) 
say fair it. Fair enough. How, how do you take your tea? Don't judge me. Milk and one sugar. A builder's no tea. No judgment. A builder's tea. I can't, I'm not in a position to judge anyone on their tea because I add so much milk. It's actually like, I, it would gross most people out. It's so <laughs> pale in colour. <laughs> I, d- I didn't know if you were a tea drinker or not because all I see on your Instagram is coffee. So I was like, I wonder if she drinks tea. I mean, I don't say no to any caffeinated beverage, to be honest, but um, I do I do love tea and I'm finding it quite... Anyway, this isn't about me. Kathy, what are you doing? Stop turning the tables. Um, I'd love to hear also if you're like a breakfast person, if you're just... But maybe you're like too focused on making the kids breakfast first thing. Like, I'm assuming they've altered your routine substantially. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I love nothing more than eating I managed to do this today, so it's a happy day. Then eating plantain and eggs for breakfast with some hot sauce. Oh wow! Um, it's like my favorite breakfast, and I never tire of it. But um, obviously, it's not very compatible with getting kids ready and stuff because cook breakfast takes time. Um, so quite often, I'll wait until they've gone off to um, like daycare or whatever um, or school, um, and then I'll I'll make it or I'll have cereal if if I don't. Um, I'm not able to that day. Nice. Are you? Do you have like a, a weekend breakfast that you like to make with them? Yes. So on Sundays, we um, usually have pancakes um, in the morning. And again, I put some plantain on the side. Um, on Saturdays, it's kind of a free-for-all. They get to decide. But, uh, but yeah, Sundays is our pancake day. Love a sun- Sunday pancake day. Let's wind back the clocks. I'd love to hear a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up and some of your kind of favourite memories of growing up as well. My childhood, um, I was born in London. Um, and then when I was three, my parents decided, as a lot of people do, that it wasn't, for whatever reason, the best place to start a family. Um, and and. Um, so we, my parents and I moved to North Norfolk, the North Norfolk coast, um, where I spent my, the rest of my childhood until I was 18. And um, we kind of moved around when we were in Norfolk. We started off in a little kind of sea shanty town called Wells Next to Sea, which is kind of a holiday hotspot for people like going on holiday in the UK. Um, and then moved to various other towns and villages, depending on, um, you know, the property my parents were interested in the time or, or other things. But um, but I was always, it was a very, no matter where we were, we were in total countryside, and it was very, very um, peaceful. It was very far from everything else and everywhere else. Um and um which had its drawbacks and its and its pluses um as I reflect on it now um but it was also very kind of full of being outside like I had a a childhood of being outside um which was really nice I'm wondering if you could travel back in time and give any advice to your teenage self if you were given that opportunity what would you say so one of the major um, difficulties of living somewhere so remote was that um, a lot of the people, the community around us were quite, not not quite, very close-minded. Um, they weren't used to seeing people who looked differently to them. Um, they couldn't um, kind of get their heads around the idea of, of 
me being disabled, my parents living a quite a kind of alternative lifestyle in general. Um, and that was very difficult to navigate both for my parents and for me. We kind of felt like outsiders. So my teenage years were a, a large portion of that time. You know, I kind of felt really like, I mean, teenagers kind of feel like they don't belong anyway, right? Because your body's changing, everything's going on, like boys are horrible, like it's just weird. Uh, it's a weird, weird and intense time anyway. Yeah. But I kind of, I had all of that plus not really feeling like I had a community of people to express any of those things with. Um, and so... I found that really hard and I think I as a teenager I I kind of thought this is just my life now and it's going to be like this forever and so if I could go back I would reassure teenage me that it's it's not like that you have the power to change your life I didn't think I had the power but I would reassure her me that um that I do and that I did yeah, that's really beautiful. Like you say, it's like a, it is a really, really tricky time. But it does make me, it does make me think if you'd had social media at that point, and you'd been able to find more of a community that way, would do you think things would have felt quite different? I think I would have, I would have felt like really seen in terms of a being disabled perspective, and. Um, it would have been great to like understand that disabled pe- other disabled people go- have gone through similar things as me. But I think that for me personally, online isn't enough. I need someone in my life who's um, not in my life, but um, but offline. I need people offline who I can engage with um, and see and. Um, and yeah reflect with um and one of my closest friends she has dwarfism as well and we've known each other since we were were very young children um and that relationship was so so key for me even though we had obviously we had really different experiences because uh, we were brought up in different ways we were brought up in different places we you know by different people we had different privileges um that notwithstanding um you know, we had a, a common denominator there and um, and that friendship was super important to me when I was a teenager, as were other friendships I had with, with other um, teenagers with dwarfism at the time. Yeah, I, I think it reminds me of something that you said in the podcast, which I'm going to ask you about later. But before we before we get there, I'd, I'm really interested to learn about your university experience um, because you actually started studying philosophy but ended up doing journalism so can you tell me a little bit about this time yeah so when I was a teenager so I was all mixed up and I didn't know where my life was going and I thought everything was shit I don't know if I can swear I thought everything was terrible um but um and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life I didn't know if I even wanted to go to university I'd got myself into the mindset that like nothing was possible for me ever but I knew I wanted to break free from this um from this situation we were in, in this kind of closed-minded community in in rural Norfolk, I I wanted to get out of that. I felt suffocated by it for so long. Um, And so I saw university as a way of doing that. And obviously I was really lucky enough to be able to go as well. Um, But because I, I felt so mixed up and stuff, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I chose philosophy kind of at random because I was like, oh, I like thinking. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll do philosophy. <laughs> I like thinking, it's fine. Um, and I and I went to, um, I didn't do very well in my A-levels. Um, and I went to, so my options were very limited. So I went to Hertfordshire University and uh, absolutely hated it. Um, I hated it firstly because there were a lot of people there from my primary school. And I was like, I don't want this. I've come here to escape Norfolk. <laughs> Why oh, are you get here? away. And they were living like um, in my halls and stuff. And I was like, oh, please don't be here. Um, and um, I hated it partly for that reason, but also I hated it because um, it was kind of like where my halls were and where my lessons were, were all on one site, like within metres from each other. And it was like um, adjacent to a motorway. And so I spent all my life in that bubble then, suddenly. Like, it was like going from one bubble in Norfolk to this bubble at university. And that's not what I wanted. I wanted to be free. I wanted to go everywhere and explore and stuff like that. But it was actually really hard to do. And I figured out I didn't actually like philosophy at all. So I was just like, I can't I can't hack three years of this. And, um, and I contacted um, the worst university in the world, London Met, um, and said, I want to join your journalism BA course and they why were like is it the worst university in the world wait wait I'll tell you why <laughs> well I don't know if it mean I don't know if it's problematic to say this but but they've they've broken they've broken the law a lot regarding international students but also um it's a bad university because um so they let me come into the second year of journalism despite the fact that I hadn't done a first year it's a bit of a red flag, but anyway, um, they let me come into the second year. I moved to London. I was like, this is where I need to be. This is where I'm going to be free. I can express myself. I can make friends. It's going to be amazing. And um, and I moved into my halls on Holloway Road, and my campus was on Holloway Road, and I was like, super easy. I, Holloway Road is also um, two minutes away from where I was born. I was born at a hospital at the top of Holloway Road. So I just felt at home. And um, and I remember walking in my first day and my lesson, my lecture, whatever it was, um, was at like, I don't know, 9 a.m. on that day. And I walked into the campus building and there was someone there like directing people where to go. And, um, and I said, oh, can you tell me where this lecture is? And then she looked on her map or whatever and she said, oh, it's at our campus in Pimlico. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> and she said, yeah, your course is actually being run out of sixth form college in Pimlico, not out of the university, even though it's a BA honours course. My mind was just like, what? And so I had to go to Pimlico every day from uh, Holloway Road. And again, I was like, I was in this really small sixth form with only seven other students. And it was like, I couldn't escape this kind of small town life. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> I thought university would be like you know fifty of us in a lecture hall, you know all those like um, American movies where you see these kids in university in these massive lecture theatres. I thought it'd be like that, and it was like not even like that. Um, but when I was in London, you know, I I felt so free in other ways, and I started going to concerts and started going to like museums and theatres and things like that, and making friends through those means you know the thing about London is it obviously attracts people from all walks of life and um, I can't tell you how refreshing it is after having spent an entire childhood being stared at on every street I would walk down not to have that experience Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not that's not to say that people in London didn't stare at me they did sometimes but it wasn't like that like the juxtaposition the the contrast was um very 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 um big I know that you worked in music in your 20s and I'd love to hear more about how you got 
into music, into the music industry and, and, and what that time was like. So it started with an obsession with Avril Lavigne. <laughs> Which is still an obsession? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a reminiscing, it's a reminiscing because her, her career definitely went down at the third album. We'll just leave it there. But anyway, started with an obsession with Avril Lavigne and then I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so seen by music, you know, because I was a troubled teenager and stuff, you know, by this bratty kind of white girl being like oh, I hate life I was like that's this is me I, this is me that I'm seeing on the TV screen and um I just I became so impassioned by music after that and I listened to a lot of rock music and um and pop music and punk music and I I I became so emotional about it and so obviously I did um journalism at university in the second and third year and um and I was like I want to write about this stuff um so I started I interned at a rock punk music magazine um, which was also based out of Holloway Road which I still lived on and loved it and got to go to loads of concerts got to meet loads of bands um, and really kind of I think in that industry it's so it can appear so even though it's like dirty rock music it can appear so glamorous and it's quite addictive and you kind of you um, you get really into like Ooh, who am I going to meet today or who am I going to interview or who am I going to, um, you know, have a, an exclusive playback of the album of or whatever. My passion for it, my my obsession with it in my early 20s was really, really born out of this fact that um, that I hadn't been part of any communities in when I was growing up. And so I was desperate to find a community where I belonged. And so um, I think my passion was probably really heightened and intensified by that um so I did lots of writing for this magazine that I interned for and then I did writing for other places as well um I found it a very very difficult industry to get into and I ended up creating my own like website which was like a music and film website and um and I got loads of opportunities through that as well but a lot of it was unpaid but I just didn't care because I loved it because I was so passionate about it and and about being part of those scenes and stuff. Eventually, um, like it couldn't, it didn't pay the bills for me. So I had to find other work and stuff and that sent me abroad. So the kind of the music journalism stuff stopped and then, and then my music changed, my music taste changed. And while I still have a really, really deep passion for music, I think I've, I've grown a lot as a person and I've found people that, I can be around and I don't yearn for that um, community in, in music like I did before. That's really, really interesting. That's really interesting. I feel like I can actually relate to that because I found a similar thing with uh, dance music and house music specifically. And it was such a big part of my life. And then I kind of grew up a bit, started doing other things and you just like find other people and then it becomes, but those memories are still so fond, right? Like, and it's such an integral part of growing up and finding out who you are. Right, exactly. And I think, I think it's a kind of rite of passage when you're like in your late teens or whatever to, to get really obsessed with music. It's just, it's a rite of passage. Totally. Uh, let's talk about your your life as a mum. I love how candidly you chat about family life in an unbrushed way and your kids are now at the ages where they've started nursery and school. Can you tell me a bit about how your memories of this time in your life uh, is shaping how you're guiding your kids through this period of time? Yeah. Um, I find what's really hard for me is... Um, 
So I, I think, I think anyone in my position probably would. I have a habit of projecting, right? As I kind of think, oh, this experience was awful for me, especially because I did have quite bad experiences as a child. So it's going to be awful for my kids. So what can I do in advance to protect them from that? Um, and I, my biggest battle is with myself in that regard, because. I don't want to wrap my children up in cotton wool. I want them to experience the world and I want them to, I cannot shelter them from all of the adversity that they're going to experience. All I can do is help build their confidence in themselves, right? And so, but my biggest battle is with myself in teaching myself that and reminding myself of that and also reminding myself that their situation is very different to mine and they are their own human beings with their own personalities and strengths, which are wildly different to what mine were. And so while we have the same disability and also obviously their identity intersects in another way because they're mixed race, which I obviously can't identify with. While we have the disability in common, it's only a small part of them actually. While other people might see it as a big part, it's really only a small part. You know, like, um, for example, um, Mariama, my eldest, she joined this, she's joined this drama club. And when she was younger, she was um, very shy, very timid, um, especially around um, big groups of people and stuff and wouldn't go to parties. And, and these were all things that I also struggled with as a child. So I really identified with, with her um, patterns of behavior in those situations um, and then she kind of stopped and she grew loads of confidence like pretty much overnight and now she like waltz into any room and talk to anybody and I have to remind myself that that she's 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 changed and that's okay like and sometimes she won't be confident and sometimes she will and that's you know it's okay either way but like so she joined this drama club and I was so nervous for her and like tying myself up in knots but I you know I made myself not say anything to her that was going to impact that like put ideas into her head before she even went but parenting is always like that you have to kind of set them free and hope hope for the best hope that you've given them the best kind of start off but ultimately they are their own people so how they move in the world is up to them. I don't have kids myself but I imagine that if I did I would think a lot about what their future could be like uh, if our government were less shit, basically. So I'd love to know um, what a better government for disabled people would look like for you in the future if you could sort them out. <laughs> oh my goodness, this, this, the answer to this question could take a long time. But um, I think the key points are disabled people shouldn't have to fight for the right to um, to have money from the government. This is always a very contentious issue um, among non-disabled people because non-disabled people sometimes think, well, why should disabled people get money for just for existing? And it's like, well, we should get money for just for existing because our existence costs so much more than yours does because everything that we have to do every single day costs more um and why should p individual people be penalized for that right um and we have a currently have a benefit system that doesn't just um just financially support you if you're disabled 
it requires you to prove in the most painstaking and embarrassing and demoralizing and degrading ways why you should get that money and do that repeatedly as well through your life. You can't just um, prove it once. You have to keep doing it. You have to keep renewing your applications and things. And um, and the whole system itself is incredibly ableist, A, because um, it's often decided and considered by people who don't have experiences of the same disabilities or the same difficulties, and B, because um, it's such a convoluted and complicated and messed up system that it's designed to make us fail and a lot of people with different disabilities to mine um would really struggle with um with just filling in the forms and stuff because it's really inaccessible um so that's like my major my major one is that like disabled people should just get money that means that we can have the same kind of or similar access to things that non-disabled people don't do. Sorry. Um, and um, obviously, like, I'd change things in terms of accessibility. I'd, I'd enforce lots of laws around accessibility and not um, not kind of taking no for an answer and just, like, shutting buildings down if they were not inaccessible and stuff um, because then it would mean that they'd have to listen. Um and I'd put disabled people in positions of power because we're not there. And like you've got you've got to have that representation in order to ensure you're being properly catered for or catered for to the best of their ability. Um, so I'd put disabled people of all kind of intersecting intersecting identities in power in in terms of disability law. Um, so yeah, those are the main things I would do. It's actually bananas that you have to keep filling in those forms when nothing's like nothing's changing. That's yeah. like I'm born with a condition. My condition doesn't change. <laughs> it's just here. Um, and the idea that, you know, yeah, we have to do that. And it's why a lot of people don't. A lot of people and the emotional trauma you have to go through, you know, really graphically recollecting experiences you've had that illustrate the severity of the ableist society we live in um it's really traumatic you know it's um it's hard and then you know quite often you're asked for extra evidence or you're told you're told that it's not enough and it's like why isn't it enough like this is really hard um and definitely having children as well you know having kids as well with the same disability um, has reminded me of that as well. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. During this series, I've had lots of chats with people about social media and the positive and negative aspects that they of it and their experience of it, um, mainly because it's something that I'm just constantly trying to figure out and, you know, with varying layers of success and balance. So how do you feel about online spaces and what they've brought to your life? I think the... Um the ability we have to be online all the time is a blessing and a very big curse. I'm speaking from my own personal experience, but when you don't set yourself strong boundaries around that, you can definitely become way too engrossed in having this bird's eye view of lots of other people's lives rather than living your own. I have definitely found that over the last year in particular, obviously because we've been home for the majority of that time, And social media has been something that I have relied on a lot more. And it's also been something I've relied on a lot more because my account's grown slightly and thus I've been afforded more opportunities like being on this podcast, which is amazing. Um, But it means that, you know, I'm shifting my priorities and my social media has become more important. And so navigating my boundaries around um, how I interact with that space is something I am continually trying to figure out and not with much success a lot of the time I'm not very good at it that's reassuring to hear that you two are just figuring it out as you go well I feel like you're amazing at figuring out because you're like okay see you later guys I'm gone for the weekend and I'm like oh my gosh I need to do that (laughs) no but the problem is like I go for the weekend and then I like don't come back and before I know it, I haven't posted in like three weeks. And I'm like, if I don't post now, I never will. So no, but, and also like, I don't know, I, it's, it's, it's a process, but um, let us talk more about your Instagram account because I'm so grateful that I found it. You're one of my favorite people to follow on that platform. I learn so much from you and your posts you wrote in a post in December um, about the meaning behind your handle at that single mum. And you said, if a great relationship happens, it happens, but I'm not holding back from living my life in the meantime. So yes, I am that single mum and nobody needs to ever feel sorry about it. Can you tell me a little bit about the ways in which your platform has shifted over time and your current aims for the account? Yeah, so I started the platform because I was like heartbroken and this guy had like ruined my life and oh my goodness, let me start a platform called That Single Mom and I'm going to talk about, I'm going to really indulge my feelings and like how I was never like the wrong one in that relationship ever. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I'm so vindicated and, you know, it was all him, bastard. And... So I started that single mum and uh, and I was also, so there was that, there was that aspect of it, but there was also like at the time the way, I mean, I won't go into it, but the way my ex and I um, parted ways was much more public locally than I would have liked. 
so there were quite a few people that knew about our situation uh, that I had no I had no control over that and um and I felt very gossiped about um and so kind of the name of it that single mum was in response to the kind of the naysayers the gossipers the people who were like oh you're a single mum now you know and um and I was just like well I'm actually going to show them that although I'm really heartbroken and vindicated um I'm also a really cool like mum irrespective of whether or not I parent with somebody um so it was kind of yeah it was kind of two there were two narratives there when I started the account and then um what I quickly found is I so I followed lots of people who talked about motherhood and parenting in a very real way and um and connected with some of those people but what I found was that I was still the outsider in that motherhood space so although um I was kind of connecting with some people and stuff this is very difficult to say without um seeming critical but it's 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 the truth disabled people typically aren't thought of as parents and um and that didn't really change even after I'd had children so I didn't feel I didn't feel included in the motherhood space even though I had kind of joined it by accident on Instagram anyway I didn't feel like I was one of them. And um, and I tried so hard. I was like, hey, it's me, it's me. And I was really inappropriate in a lot of people's DMs. And I'm sorry if any of those people are listening to this. But um, but I just, I was just like, I just want to be part of the gang. And, uh, but it, it didn't, it didn't work. And I found that, you know, I just accidentally kind of, not accidentally, but um, unintentionally started talking about disability and my experience as a disabled woman. And as soon as I did that, my account went from 2K followers to 24K followers. And I was like, okay, so I know what you want me to talk about. Um, Which is a weird, it's a weird flex because it's like, or a weird feeling because it's like on the one hand, like that's amazing and it's, brought me great opportunities and a lot of people have like messaged me and been like disabled people have messaged me and be like I feel really like happy I found your account and that is amazing like I'm not taking not devaluing that at all but it's kind of put me in my place a bit in terms of like my disability is still the first thing that's seen by other by non-disabled people not the fact that I'm a mom probably not even the fact that I'm a woman, it's my disability. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a hard thing that I've struggled with as my account has transitioned into talking more about disability. And um, and I do occasionally write the captions about motherhood um, because it is so prominent in my, in my life. Um, but it's... Um, they're never met with the same kind of rapture as my disability posts. And you have to kind of, or I've reflected on why that could possibly be. That's that's really interesting. And thank you for sharing that with us because that 
um, you know, that's, that's a lot. And especially cause I've heard you talk, um, in other podcasts about how, you know, you've wanted, you always wanted to be a mum from a really, really young age. Right. So that experience must've felt really jarring. And, um, yeah, really, yeah. because like, so again, it comes from the thing of wanting to be part of a community, but never feeling like one as a teenager. And it was when I was a teenager that I was like, right, I'm going to have loads of kids and that's how I'm going to join a community. Oh, <laughs> I, I couldn't do that either. And I'm not just talking about Instagram. I'm talking about offline as well, you know, mother and baby groups, um, um, NCT, whatever. There was always a blocker. There was always a blocker. I wasn't part of that crowd I wanted I joined it I went there I, I I went to those spaces but I wasn't I wasn't part of that crowd and um and yeah so I definitely have struggled with that since becoming a mum for sure for mm. sure I I I have I've I did a bit of a deep dive into you Kathy um <laughs> I think I listened to like every podcast you've ever been on uh, in preparation for this interview but I I did hear you talk about in one how you know representation is really important when it comes to uh the media um and disabled people but what's actually probably more important is when we include people all kinds of people in our everyday lives and you you spoke specifically as an example about you said you already know the mum's and you can already tell the mums who aren't going to invite your daughters to birthday parties. It just really made me think, and it links back to something you, you said at the beginning of the podcast as well. Like it's all well and good, all of these incredible new campaigns in the media and in advertising and that kind of thing. But like, what are we doing in our everyday? What are we doing in our everyday? And what conversations are we having? There's There's been such a kind of drive for diversify your kid's bookshelf. It doesn't mean shit if you're not talking to your kids about what they're reading it doesn't mean anything because they will still have questions but they will learn that even in the house they can't really ask them so if they can't ask them in the house to their parents or their caregivers when they see a disabled person on the street you know what are they going to think they're going to be freaked out they're going to think ah and not know what to do about it and so they're going to suppress it or you know their their reaction is going to be negative and they're going to associate negative feelings with seeing disability around them. It's great to have representation, don't get me wrong, but it's not liberation. Completely. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it stems back to people not wanting to fuck up, right? People don't want to make a mistake. People don't want to offend anyone. Right. Um, and, and, you know, we're we we're, we're we're all we're all like this we don't we want to be seen as kind empathetic good people right and i think a lot of the and i think we've i think the kind of the teaching comes from people you know we're con- socially conditioned to not ask questions or to shy away from these things because that's deemed that's deemed the right thing to do but it it absolutely isn't, right? I mean, in your in your experience, I'm assuming you'd rather people talk about it and ask questions. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm not going to say that all disabled people will agree with me, though. I'm just going to put this caveat. But um, but for me, of course, I would rather that. And I just would rather people fuck up and then I can be like, oh, actually, no, it's this. And also, just like, I think we have a real tendency as a society to 
feed into this illusion to our children or to young people that we know everything and we don't mess up, but they do. And I think once we kind of break that down and be like a bit honest with them and with ourselves and we say, actually, I don't have all the answers or I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but I'm going to go away and find out or, you know, or if you can't go away and find out, uh, you know, just I'm not sure. It's just real life. That's what that's, nobody's perfect. In in parenting, we we do have this archaic view that parents are always right and children are always wrong and parents know everything and children know nothing. Um, and that's just, I mean, speaking as a parent, just definitely not true. <laughs> we mess up all the time, but we've got to be honest about it because the only way we'll create a safe space for our children to feel like they can learn and grow and fuck up themselves and it's okay as long as they as as long as they you know repair it if they can um is by modeling that totally totally um on world accessibility day you wrote about how you want to challenge our perception of what accessibility means. You shared loads of great facts and figures, uh, including over 11, there are over 11 million disabled people in the UK, less than 8% of disabled people in the UK use a wheelchair. However, over 50% of people in the UK think disability is only physical. Please, can you talk more about how accessibility is essential to everyone and the importance of normalizing the question, do you have any access needs? Sure. So I feel like, um, so when we're talking about accessibility to physical spaces, the first thing people, including myself, think of is the ramp, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the easiest thing. And it's the thing that's perhaps most commonly asked for and the thing that's supposedly, theoretically, easily fixed. Um, and when we're talking about accessibility in terms of online spaces, um, we're going to talk about like captioning your content for deaf users or for people with hearing loss. What's really dangerous about these two things is, yes, absolutely, those those things are without question needed for the people that need them. But that is not all of what accessibility is. And um, I see a lot of um, particularly non-disabled people chastising places and people and communities for being inaccessible in only that way. Right. And it's like, well, but actually we are all, all of what we do, what everyone does is inaccessible all the time. So I'm going to take Instagram as an example. Yes, I put captions on my posts, um, but I've only recently started putting alt tags for blind users on my pictures. And I'm also aware that the captions on my post, on my stories, um, yes, they make it easier for people who um, may not be able to hear my voice. But for people who have visual impairments as well, they don't help, right? And so, and it's so, it's accessibility is so complex. There are so many issues, like accessibility issues, color contrasts, um, shapes, um, noise. There's so, so many things and that we just don't hear about and we don't know about. And the only reason I know about them is because I've kind of worked in these areas. But even, even then, I don't know that much. But we have to, that's why the question of asking what your access needs are is so important because 
so many, firstly, so many accessibility things we just don't know about or don't consider. Secondly, disabilities are not always visible and shouldn't ever have to be disclosed if we don't want to. Um, so it shouldn't be what is your disability. It should be what do you need for me to make this possible for you. Um, and thirdly, because access is not just about disability. And this is another thing because that's what people think. Accessibility equals something that disabled people need, not just disabled people. People from lower income households need it. People who don't have um, a higher level of education, whatever that means. Um, black and brown people need it. Indigenous people need it. People who don't have the internet need it. People who are a single parent family need it. You know, it depends on the context and the situation, but all minoritized communities have a level of access that they need more than cis white men. And so it should just be it should just be a normal question and it shouldn't be about disability it should be about anything that we need yeah thank you for sharing that that's it's just such a simple question and it's such a simple question women need it okay let's say you're on your period and you've got an eight eight hour meeting at work one day and you need to go to the toilet five times that's an access need and you're just a cis heteronormative um non-disabled woman but like, you know, it's it's an access need. And we have to reduce the stigma around that and the shame around asking those kind of questions and answering them as well and just normalise it. Thank you so much because you've definitely opened my eyes and I think you will have expanded a lot of people's takes on, on this issue because you've really added like so much necessary complexity to it. So I'm really, really grateful for that. Thank you. Um I do want to talk a little bit about uh, representation of disabled people or disabled characters specifically in TV and film, because this is how I actually discovered you. Um, That's how I first came across your account. So I was wondering if you could talk about able-bodied actors uh, playing disabled characters in film and in television and what harm that is doing. Sure. I'm just going to say as a preface, for me personally, again, not all disabled people agree. I don't use the term able-bodied. I use the term non-disabled because it puts us on an equal footing and it doesn't indicate that one is better than the other. And it also um, takes into account um, disabilities that are non-visible because able-bodied is all about physical. First of all, disabled people, it's so, so hard for disabled people to get jobs in this industry it is a very inaccessible industry just in terms of people's disability in general. But it's also inaccessible because Hollywood and the media is so hyper-focused on what people look like and big names and whether you've got like um, sex appeal or just like any other kind of appeal, like they see dollar signs before they see the person, right? And because disability is the historical narratives around disability are like oh pathetic ugly freak shows all of that um it obviously these two don't don't go together and so you know I think Hollywood recently particularly I'm going to talk more about Hollywood because it's more um the examples of of ableism in Hollywood films um is are so much more jarring and so much more impactful because of the reach they have but um, Hollywood in particular um, has woken up quite recently to the idea that we 
we need to um, we need to talk about disability in film, and that actually could be a selling point of the film. Um, but they're not ready to employ disabled actors because they either believe that we can't do it, they think, oh, well, we can't um, we can't meet their access requirements, and they know that the non-disabled actor is going to sell more, if especially if it's an, a name. Dis- the th- here's the thing. Disabled people don't need awareness. People know we exist, right? People know that disabled people exist. You've got um, you've got a character playing um, somebody, a non-disabled, uh, neurotypical person playing someone who is neurodivergent. We know neurodivergent people exist. We've seen them. We've met them. We've interacted with them. We're aware they're there. There is no reason that a neurodivergent person couldn't play that character. There is absolutely no reason. Um, And the idea that, you know, the non-disabled person is doing it to um, increase awareness is just completely false because, yeah, we're already aware. We don't need awareness. What we need is inclusion. Um, And it is not not forward thinking to think I'm addressing disability when you've got no disabled people in the room. There's nothing forward thinking. All it all it says is just instant gratification for the people who make that film, and you know a kind of cash cow attitude. But but it's not done with the right intentions. Thank you, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I would love to talk about skincare. We're going to really shift gears now. I noticed recently you posted about some positive conversations you've had with the skincare brand Sunday Riley. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your journey into skincare and why your skincare routine is so important to you? Yeah. So um, at the beginning of lockdown last year in March, 2020, um, we were home a lot, right? And um, and I bought um, Caroline Hiron's book, skincare and it's like a kind of a bible for all things skincare it tells you everything that you need to know and I was up until that point like washing my face with shower gel never wearing SPF um burning myself to a crisp in Greece every year and um and I read that book and I was like oh actually I could look after my skin a bit better and I've got the time right now to do it because it's lockdown and so I did start doing it and I um and I thought, well, I've got this Instagram platform. How cool would it be to to talk about it on that? And I think that's a, also a reflection of my kind of, not to sound egotistical, but my growth as a person because I was very aware coming into talking about this that I would not be welcome in the beauty industry, let's put it that way. Like it's probably the most <laughs> the most um, contentious area I could, I could foray into. Um, but I was just like, fuck it, let's just go. Let's just see what happens. And um, and so, you know, I started talking about it and then I started writing to brands and, um, and like, you know, they would send me products and stuff and then I would talk about the products I'd received and how they worked for my skin. And I was like, I want to do more with this. I want to do more. Um, and so I started uh, doing some other things, like doing some lives with the brands I liked and also doing a couple of like paid ads and stuff on my Instagram. And I don't think people realize like, or maybe they don't care, which is fine, but how huge it is for um, somebody that looks like me to um, do a paid ad with a beauty brand. Because, um, 
yeah, it's challenging a lot of um, a lot of narratives. Um, so I've I've been super like happy with that, and and like when I was growing up, I always felt like skincare and makeup and stuff. It wasn't for me because I never saw anyone that looked like me using it, and they, you know, they were all like beautiful by Eurocentric standards. They were all non-disabled. They were all, for the majority, white, which obviously I am as well. But everyone fit a certain model that I was not part of. And even when we do have disabled people in beauty campaigns, which is so rare, it is usually part of a diversity campaign. So again, it's that cash cow thing. It's not just incidental. Um, And it's usually somebody who still fits a lot of Eurocentric beauty standards in every other way. And I was just like, I just want to go for it. And so I did. And I've really enjoyed it. And what I've really liked is that I've had so many, you know, I've got these, um, on, on my Instagram, I've got like these group chats with um, other skincare fans. And I love that. And none of them, are, a couple of them are disabled, but not many of them. And I love that they like take my recommendations seriously and stuff, even though I don't really know what I'm doing. But the fact that they're listening to me is really cool because I feel part of that community. I feel part of these little groups and that's really nice. Um, I contacted Sunday Riley because they have a product that I love, but is quite unfortunately named um, in terms of disability. And um, I, I contacted them to point this out and then they were like, Oh yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. And then I was like, Hey, I could do some, um, I could do some disability consulting for you if you fancy it, you know, I could, I could teach your team about this stuff so that you don't make this mistake in the future. And they were like, yeah, cool. Um, and they got me in and I, um, I, I did like a big, um, like presentation with, with their whole team and we all ended up crying at the end. It was amazing. But, uh, well, not all of us, but some of us ended up crying at the end. <laughs> it's like, whoa, <laughs> didn't expect like a therapy session out of it, but it's great. <laughs> But um, but yeah, that kind of stuff like it's ah, uh, it's like I, I still when I think about it, I really smile because um, I'm proud of myself for doing it because it pushes me out of my comfort zone massively. But I'm also like I, I see a real change in those kind of conversations. I see a real change, and I like that. You know, I I want to be part of change, so positive change. That's awesome. That's so good to hear. I, I, I too actually, I mean, I've, 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 I found myself getting really into skincare over the past year as well. And for me, it's so much about like, if I'm having a bleh day where I just feel really sad, if I get up and do, do my skincare routine in the morning, it's like one good thing I've done for myself in the day. And I will be sit, sitting down and thinking oh, like, it's okay. You did that. Like you did that today. Right. Right, definitely. It's such an act of like radical self love, and I didn't expect it to be. But like, looking after my skin, it's going to sound really corny, but looking after my skin has made me look after other aspects of me as well. Like, it's made me pay attention to myself in ways that I've always shied away from. I always used to look away from the mirror and, um, and not, you know, not look at myself properly because of whatever internal demons I was battling at the time. But like skincare forces you to putting on skincare forces you to do that, and um, I'm really glad to have found something that that forces me to look after my body in that way. 
you don't have to have like some amazing eight step routine that costs like a thousand pounds to buy all the products for just literally rubbing cream into your skin feels great it just feels so great and um taking the time to do that and not rushing yourself and like looking after your skin is like it just it sets me up for the day and it relaxes me at night and um yeah I really really recommend it men women non-conforming non-binary people all of it recommend it how would you feel about doing a quick fire round let's go quick fire with Kathy breakfast lunch or dinner dinner tea or pancakes why are you doing that to me tea (laughs) cleanser or toner oh stop it Venetia (laughs) cleanser facial tools or face masks face masks serums or oils serums SPF or moisturizer SPF be responsible (laughs) houseplants or fresh cut flowers houseplants podcasts or netflix i have to say podcasts surely you would be surprised the amount of people who don't (laughs) (laughs) sunrise or sunset sunsets routine or spontaneity spontaneity and finally early night or night owl early night lovely i would love to know what is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit cleansing my skin in the evening no matter what, even if I'm drunk to the nines, even if I've got a man in my bed, I will always cleanse my skin in the evening and I will take my time over it. <laughs> See you in 15 minutes. <laughs> Just wait there. Literally, yeah. <laughs> and final question, what is one thing you hope your older self will have achieved? So I, like everybody on Instagram, want to write a book. I was going to ask... I was going to ask, as soon as we started, stopped recording, I was going to go, are oh, you writing a book? <laughs> I'm not, but I definitely want to. I'd like to do it when my kids are a little bit older because I just don't have the mental headspace right now. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to write a book, even if it's not something that um, that is sold or picked up on. Just kind of for me, I do find writing really cathartic. So I think it would be great for me to do personally. It's going to happen. There's no doubt. Um, Kathy, thank you so, 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 so much for being on this podcast. It's just been wonderful to chat to you. And I'm really, really grateful that you've just, that you chose to come on the show. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you're a literary agent, then I hope you are sliding into Kathy's DMs as we speak. I will see you back here next week for a brand new episode. And do make sure if you're new to the show that you're subscribed and there are plenty of episodes for you to listen back to. I hope you're all doing really well and sending loads of love. See you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 